I want to begin with a quote. It says, To be right, we must think worthily of God. It is morally imperative that we purge from our minds all ignoble concepts of deity and let him be the God in our minds that he is in the universe. Let him be the God in our minds that he is in the universe. If you bow with me in prayer real quick. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remove the concerns and worries that we have in our hearts and our minds for just a few moments. Lord, that you would allow us to open ourselves to you or to hear what you have to tell us today so that you can truly be as magnificent in our lives as you actually are in the universe. Lord, we know that requires that we give over and give up to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, that we can truly seek you out during this time, that we can listen to what you had to tell us, that we can live into you and know you fully. In your name we pray. Amen. We began a few weeks ago discussing how the creation reveals certain things about God, and that as mankind we refuse to submit to God, we do not give him the honor or the thanks that he deserves, and that leads to a downward fall, not only of ourselves, but also for humanity. And so we discussed, and as the quote mentions, we need to have a proper view of God. How should we think about God? And we discussed the dangers of trying to make God just a little bit higher than ourselves, or just truly not understanding who God is, and so we set out on a journey to try and understand a little bit better. We began by listing a series of concepts. We'll continue with that today. We discussed how God is incomprehensible. He's not like anything else, as in he's not the same as or closely resembling. We use those words because we lack other ways to describe God, but he truly is incomprehensible, something we can't fully understand. We discussed that God has attributes, that those are things that God reveals about himself. We do not know all of them but they're all true of him. And we discussed that the attributes are not an individual part of God. They are fully who he is because he is a unified God. He's not made up of traits like we are, but there are things we can know about him. We described last week the self-sufficiency of God. We quoted John 5.26 that the Father has life in himself. And because he is self-sufficient, he has no needs, doesn't have any needs of us, and instead he voluntarily has a relationship with us. In concept number four, we said that God is eternal. Proverbs, I'm sorry, the Psalms tells us from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He has no beginning and he has no end. He just simply is eternal. Now, all these are difficult concepts for us to understand because they go against everything that we know almost from our beginning until now. But we know that God is eternal. We also know that God is infinite. That was number five. That there is no possibility of him getting any better than he already is. That there's also no possibility of him getting any worse than he is. He simply is, and he is infinite. There is no limit to what he can do. 
All of us have significant limits, but he doesn't. And that is a challenge for our mind to understand. So I want to discuss three more, Lord willing, today. Number six, if you're taking notes, as many of you are, is the immutability of God. Immutability. It's a really big word to say that God doesn't change. There is no changing with God. He is who he said he was. He is self-sufficient. He is eternal. He is timeless. And he has not, is not, and will not ever change. He is simply unchanging. And so the qualities and nature of who he is is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Malachi 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And James 1.17 says, There is no variableness or shadow of turning within him. In other words, he doesn't change from one day to the next, from one generation to the next. He simply is the same that he was and is. Now, as I kind of mentioned earlier, he cannot get any better than he is because he's already perfect. And he cannot get any worse or less than what he is. He cannot change that direction either. Because anything less than that would be less than perfectly holy. And that is entirely what God is. Perhaps it's easier or at least more insightful for us to understand this when we think about ourselves. Because we change all the time, don't we? Our attitudes, sometimes with me they can change every few minutes. Our interests Maybe the things that kept your interest and attention years ago or even months ago are not the same today. What about our opinions? Anyone in here ever have an opinion change? Some of us like to hold those pretty holy. Our moods change. The things that we love seem to change. We are always changing. And that is the very nature of who we are. As we grow and progress through life, things change. We change. We change physically. We change emotionally. And hopefully we change spiritually that we grow closer and closer to him. But at all times, in all ways, we are constantly changing. There is never a single moment in time that we are not changing. I remember very vividly my introduction to psychology class that I had in college. Dr. Furman was my professor, and he recently went to be with his Savior. He was an interesting man, but going to a Christian college, he was a firm believer. And I remember he was very animated in a certain way, and he came in one day, and he was talking about something, and all of a sudden, he smacked his hand on the podium like as hard as he could, and said, I just killed thousands of cells. And the point he was making was, is that God's mercies are new every day and our cells and our skin and every bit of who we are also begins to change all the time. This is not the same skin I had three months ago. I'm not the same person I was when I was born because things are dying and growing and changing inside of me. We change all the time, every moment of the day, even when we're sleeping. God does none of that. He is who he is in himself 
and he does not change. So it's a comfort to know, really, that God doesn't change. Because that means no matter what I do in my life, he still loves me. No matter how much I change and fail, no matter how much I might disappoint him, he still loves me. The same that he did before. I have made this statement before and it fits in multiple points through today's sermon. When God saved me when I was 18 years old, not only did he save me as in forgive me for the sins of the past, he already knew what I would do after the fact and paid the price for those. This is a concept that we hold very dearly called the eternal security of the believer in that I am saved when I was saved at 18. I was saved for what I had done, for the sin I was currently involved, and for any sin I might do in the future. I never, ever, ever have to have the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, applied to my life again because he has saved my soul. Are there times that I need to ask for forgiveness and seek him again? Absolutely. But never for salvation. That is once a purchase done and fulfilled. And so we should have some assurance and some confidence that no matter how my life goes up or down, how my behavior goes in or out, while I am still at the wrong, if I am doing what God does not want me to do, we must always understand that he still loves me. He still cares for me. And that will never change because God doesn't change. We spent a great deal of time a few weeks ago talking about the downward fall of humanity and how our society is changing rapidly. But God doesn't. And I will confess, I for one need to remember that more often. That when the world seems a mess around me, he's still the same. The same power, the same God he was thousands of years ago, and the same God he will be thousands of years later, as far as we can understand. He's the same. And that's important. Number seven is omniscience. Omniscience. I'm going to talk about a couple of omni. It's a prefix that means all. So omniscience means to know everything. How much? Everything. (laughs) Everything that can be known physically, everything that can be known emotionally or by thought, God knows everything. There is nothing that he does not know. It also expresses the idea that he has perfect knowledge and doesn't need to learn anything. From the moment we're born, we have to learn things. And all the way through our lives, we have to continue to learn things. God doesn't need to learn anything, nor can he forget anything. He just knows everything. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14 says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom made him understand who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge. So these are what we call rhetorical questions. It's a method and tool for teaching. There is no answer to this. Who taught God knowledge? Who taught him how to make things? 
Who showed him? Who consulted him? Whom did God consult? Whom taught him to understand? The answer is no one, because God simply is. There are no answers to these questions. And if you look all through the Psalms and Proverbs and all through the scriptures, we see these questions over and over and over again. When we finally sit quietly and consider all that he's made, we ask ourselves these same questions and the answers should be a satisfying no one. It is simply God. And to think otherwise, to try and explain otherwise, is to bring God down unto our level. And this is what we have to avoid. When we truly understand that God knows everything, we begin to appreciate him more. Romans 10.34 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Again, a rhetorical question. God never discovers anything. He's never surprised by anything. He's never amazed by anything. He never seeks out information. And maybe you say, well, I don't know. There's a couple of passages where it sounds like he's searching for something or wants to know something. Let me just give you one example. You can turn with me to Genesis. Let's talk about Genesis chapter 3 for just a minute. As you're turning to Genesis, you'll know this is the creation account. God created everything. He wasn't surprised at how good it turned out. He just said it was good, perfect, because how could he make anything less than perfection? But then we see in Genesis chapter 3 a very horrible event. We see that Adam and Eve chose to violate God's will and do the one thing he commanded them not to do. Now, up until this point, however this is possible, however best we can understand it, man and woman made in the very image of God, but not with all the same attributes that he has, were living in a perfect harmony with God. Then they ate of the fruit, and the scripture says their eyes were opened, and instantly they were ashamed, because they knew. And in chapter 3, verse 8, we pick up, and it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Was God really looking for them? As in, did he not know where they were at? I don't think so. I think God knew exactly where they were at. God knows everything at all times. So did he know where they were at? Absolutely. So let's think about this question. Why on earth would he say, oh, Adam, where are you? I've mentioned before, we see the use of time. We see the use of these words to describe and almost seemingly have limits to God, but they're not applicable to God. They are simply for our understanding. So when God calls out to Adam, where are you? 
It's not because God didn't know. And in fact, maybe it's a question to remind Adam what? Where he is. You see, Adam and Eve had fallen out of eternal union and communication with God. And when they did, they were so ashamed of what they did, they tried to hide themselves as foolish and as stupid and as useless as that is. And God simply said, where are you? Has God ever asked you a question and your heart revealed the answer and you knew? I think that's what was happening here. What's the answer? Where are they? Separated from him. Hiding from him. If you do not have a relationship with him, if you are not saved and God comes and asks you that question, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know where you're at. It's because he wants to reveal to your very heart where you are, which is separated from him. The problem is it's our natural state. We're born this way. We are born into sin. We continue into sin. But the question is just as real today. Where are you? And if you do not know the free pardon of sin, if you've never been saved, then the question is, you are lost and undone and separated from a holy God who knows exactly where you're at, who knows exactly what you're thinking and knows exactly what you're doing. And we ought to be reminded when God asks us, where are you? And so when we read and have accounts like this, let us not diminish God by acting like maybe he didn't know where they were at. He knew. And he was calling them out. And at some point in your life, everyone will be called out at least once by God and asked, where are you at? And how you respond will write the rest of your days. So as I mentioned, God knows everything. He is omniscient. If he could learn anything or find out a secret, that would mean that he was not perfect. That would mean that he would need someone to teach him or to reveal something to him. So that obviously can't happen. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says, The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So we can't truly understand God because we have a limited mind. But God has known us since we were created. Knows the hairs of your head. Knows everything about you. And again, when we combine this idea, for those who know him, this is a very comforting thought, is it not? God knows us. He knows everything about us. And if he loves us, which he does, and he is not changeable... That is a very comforting spot to be in. There's nothing that we can do that he doesn't know. There's nowhere that we can go that he isn't. He knows everything and he does not change. All of your struggles, all of your failures, all of your disappointments, all of your fears, God knows. I've said this over and over again. You'll continue to hear it from me for as long as I have breath. God already knows. Why are we holding it back? 
Somehow, because the only way we can communicate with other people is verbally or by writing or something of that nature, we somehow think we can hold something back from God and hide it from Him, and we can't. If you had a horrible thought come through your mind, God already knows. If you had a positive thought come through your mind, God already knows. He's not waiting for you to verbalize it because He already knows the answer. So this can be, again, terrifying to those who do not know the Lord, who are not forgiven for their thoughts, for their actions. You can do whatever you want to behind a closed door. Does God know about it? Yep. You can go as far away from anyone else as you want to. Does God know what you're doing? Yes. You can try and cover up whatever you did. Does God know? Yes. Let's get really down to it. What if you just thought about it and never did it? God still knows and it's still wrong. Those who have not been forgiven, do you hear what I'm telling you? God knows. Everyone else may think you look great. I don't mean physically. I just mean like your life. Maybe you look like you have it all together. Maybe you don't. It doesn't matter. Maybe you're just kind of passing through. But the reality is God who knows everything sees your heart. He sees your thoughts. He sees your intentions. He knows. And yet, despite all of that, he still loves you. He still loves you. And he still wants you to know him. Let me just ask this one last thought on this topic. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked. We think and feel all kinds of things that we shouldn't. Many of those things we would be utterly ashamed and embarrassed for people to find out and are when they do. But imagine there's somebody who literally knows everything you think about. Do you think they'd still love you the way they do now? See, God does. Knows everything you ever have thought, everything you are thinking, everything you will think, and loves you anyway. And was willing to send his own son to die for you, knowing every evil, horrible thought that's ever entered your mind. Does that help you understand God's love and his mercy? Do you see that when we have a proper view of who God is, how it changes how we think about him? He's no longer just a little half step higher than us. He is so far beyond us, we can't even comprehend it. He's incomprehensible. Yet we should spend time trying because why? When we have a proper view of God, it changes how we view everything. It's absolutely vital. And I'll just go ahead and say, I'm glad that there's not a single person who knows everything that I think. 
Last one for today. Number eight, as I have them listed here. There's no particular order for these. God is self-existence. The self-existence of God. He's self-existing. So here's the question for this one. Where did God come from? You ever been asked that? You ever thought that before? This is a pretty common question for young children to ask. Because it makes sense to our minds. Because everything came from something. Except for God. Everything has a beginning and an end. Except for God. Everything can improve. Except for God. Everything came from somewhere else except for God. And so we must be careful in all honesty when we answer this question, either to adults who are unbelievers and especially to children, when we say, I don't know. Because that's a false answer. The real answer is, he didn't come from anywhere. That's why he's God. Do you begin to see the difference? Because to somehow say, well, I don't know where God came from, implies what? That he came from somewhere and makes him what? Less than the God that he actually is. So when people ask us, and people will, whether directly or indirectly, whether adults or young children, where did God come from? We should smile and say, you know what? I don't understand it, but here's the answer. He didn't come from anywhere because he is God and everything came from him. And that is bigger and deeper than I can possibly imagine or understand. I cannot comprehend it. But just to simply say, well, that's a good question. I don't know. Implies that he came from somewhere and I'm just too silly to know. And that's so far from the truth. It's offensive. So where did God come from? To ask the question is to start with a false premise. And the premise is that God has a beginning. God, in fact, has no origin. As I mentioned, everything else has a beginning. Everything else has an origin. Everything else came from something except for God. Now, you may not find that satisfactory. I can't make it any more satisfactory for you. That's something you literally have to sit alone with God and let him reveal to you who he is. And you have to be okay with it. And at some point, you have to take that on faith. That although my mind cannot comprehend something that doesn't have a beginning, he apparently doesn't have a beginning. This is one of the things that distinguishes God from everything else because everything else has a beginning or a source. And this is also one of the things we find so uncomfortable, which is why we just say, well, I don't know. God exists outside of our categories, our descriptions, our tests, our knowledge, our measurement. And this really requires humility. 
Because there's a part of us that wants to know everything. We want to control everything. We want to be able to understand and define everything. And if you look at human history, that's exactly what we've been doing. Men and women do this in different ways sometimes, but it all comes down to the same thing. We want to understand, categorize things, put it in a certain place. It's just who we are. It's how we collect things. It's how we organize things. It's why we add things up and measure things. We want to know how far and how tall and how fast. And then when it comes to God, we can't answer any of these questions about himself. Turn with me, if you'd like, to John chapter 1. Very well-known passage, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All right. Now you're going to say, well, wait a second. In the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of time as we know it. Who created time? God created time. So he can't be inside of that beginning. He had to be before that beginning. Does that make sense? Otherwise, he would be within time. So when he is saying, in the beginning was the word. The word was there before the beginning, and then we had a beginning as far as we understand it. Now, that was really complicated and hard to follow. Think through with me here. In the beginning was the Word. God was already there before time began. That's what this is saying. He pre-existed time. He was existing before time. And then He what? He made time. So in the beginning, God already was. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. What can make something out of something else? Only something that has greater power. And if everything in this world was made by God, then God had to exist and have power beyond all measure to bring all things into existence. Time as we understand it began when God spoke it into existence. And we see that if we go back to Genesis on the first day, as it will. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. I'll read a couple of these verses too. Colossians 1, beginning with 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is, catch this, before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is before all things and created all things, and in him somehow all things are held together. Ever wondered about that? He holds everything together. Everything that we think we can see or touch or taste, even the invisible things, are all held together by Him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One more passage of study here on this self-existency of God. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we see Moses, who is minding his own business, watching over the sheep, and sees a bush. Again, now we're struggling to define who God is. It appeared as though it was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And so he approaches, and God speaks out of the burning bush. Tells him to take his shoes off because this is holy ground. God is present in some form with him. He bows to the ground and Moses is being told, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to get my people. Moses tries to play a bargaining game with God. And again, just so you remember, God saw this coming. So God wasn't upset. God knew it. Moses was honest with God. Moses had some questions. Let me pick up Exodus 3 with verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? I still think this is a peculiar question. Let me pause here just for a minute. Of all the things you would ask, top of my list would be like, Hey, what's your name? But it was. And I think there's a reason for that. Picking up with verse 14. God said to Moses, in my translation it says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God is doing something very special here. He is in fact revealing his name to us for us to know. Now, if you remember from probably two years ago, I gave a sermon on naming. And I I discussed in that, that when we name something, that's a symbol of authority, right? When we name a child, you can only do that if the child belongs to you. When Adam was told to name all the animals, it was a transferring of authority from God to mankind to keep and take care of the animals in the garden. And so we name something, it has some semblance of authority. Who named God? He named himself. And the name that he gave himself is, I am who I am. Or perhaps your translation says, I am what I am. Or, I will be what I will be. Or as I have written in my margins for many, many years ago, when I was probably in middle school or high school, I am he that is, period. I am is simply what God's name is, indicating the self-existence that he is. Now, if you follow through, I, I continue to read in verse 15. 
And we see it says there, it says, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers. And it continues. Just a little note for you. Many of you, your translations will have Lord in all caps. When it is in all capitalization, just a little side note for you, that is an indication that the word in the Hebrew actually is Yahweh or a derivative of it. In Yahweh, we get the pronunciation from four letters that represent God. And it's the verb to be, as in he is. It's a continuation of this idea that when we talk about the very essence and nature of who God is, He simply is. And there is no other way to describe who He is. Where did He come from? He didn't. He simply is. How do we understand God? He's incomprehensible. He simply is who He is. Where does He get His power? He is all-powerful in Himself. He simply is. And brothers and sisters, this has been lost on us. It was so important to the early Hebrews, they wouldn't even repeat that word. They wouldn't say the name of God because it was so holy. And now we flippantly pass it around in about half of our swear words. I am that I am. I am who I am. I am he That is, there is nothing higher than that. The natural state of man fights against this because we want to be, I am. That's our struggle. It's where Satan came from. Isaiah 14 and 13 says, it's talking about the devil. You said in your heart, notice the eyes in here. So listen closely. It's at least four times. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Where does everything that is the opposite of God come from? The very idea that somehow I can set myself up above God. And whether we want to admit it verbally or not, we live like this all the time. Setting ourselves up as I am. It is my way. It is what I want. It is what I desire in my life. And we fail to recognize and we fail to worship and we fail to honor the great I am who is in control of me, not the other way around. Over and over again. Let me give you another quote by Tozer. He says, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood And from that elevated position declares, I am. See, this is the origin of all sin and everything that's wrong in the world. Is somehow thinking that we can be equal to and above God. And we often think that because we have built such a low opinion of God. There is an inward desire of self 
within all of us. The scripture describes it. We struggle with it all the time, even after we're saved. The only way to get ourselves off the throne and to give it to the one who rightfully deserves it, the true I am, is found in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him, uh-oh, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is the one thing we don't want to do. We don't want to give in. We want to be in charge. We want to be right. We want to be the one who does whatever we want to be. We want to one who knows everything. Every attribute of God we've talked about so far, we try to take hold of and somehow think that we're going to overcome it. And when we come face to face with God, we fight him because we're trying to sit on his own throne. The only way that you can truly come to God is to acknowledge that he is the I am. And what I am is absolutely nothing. This is why I think it's so hard for many to get saved because they're not willing to give in to God. They still want to control things. They still want to do it their way. They still want to be in charge. They will not give up on the idea that somehow they're the ones in charge. Whether they say it or not, it's often the seat in their heart. So let me summarize these things as I close. We talked about how God is immutable. That is, his qualities don't change. I mentioned and hit kind of hard that his love for us doesn't change. Some of us need to be reminded of this probably every day. That God loves us no matter how many times we fail. And when we truly realize that, we don't use it as an excuse to continue in sin. We use it as an excuse to say, amen, thank you, God, help me to do better. When we properly understand that. So don't think it's just an excuse to keep living the life in the state that you're currently living. But here's the other thing that doesn't change. His view on sin. Ooh. See, that's the part we don't like to think about very much. We can get away with it. We can forget about it. And trust me, I guarantee you, we've all forgotten about more sin than we could possibly imagine. Because that includes what? Our thoughts. But God's attitude towards sin has not and will not change. What is the only proper punishment for sin? Eternal separation from him. That has not changed. And because God is not parts, he is not going to, when you come before his throne, and say, well, you know, you tried pretty hard the last few years, so go ahead and come on in. It's not the way it's going to work. He's going to rightfully say, I fully love you and I'm fully justice. Therefore, depart from me. I never knew you. Because his views on sin are not going to change. Now, we can redefine them all we want to. I touched on this a few weeks ago. We can say, well, you can marry whoever you want to. We can have an abortion for however late you want to. We can redefine sexual relationships however you want to. We can say, well, addiction to this is okay. But the reality is, all of the things that God has declared sinful or wrong then are still wrong and still sinful today. Why? Because God doesn't change. I don't care what society says. 
It doesn't change. So those of you who don't know God, we need to remember this. That's God's immutability. He doesn't change. As we mentioned, God's omniscience. God knows everything. That doesn't change either. No matter how much we can try to hide from God, no matter how much we think he doesn't know, he knows. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there as well. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as the light with you. Psalms 139 are part of it. Again, that's encouraging because we have some folks here today who need to remember that. No matter how far away you think you are, no matter how bad the circumstances are, God is still there. And we have others who are here today who do not know God, who also need to remember, no matter how far away you think you are from God, you're not. No matter how far you think you run from Him, you're not really getting away. Because He is there. And He knows. And then lastly, we need to remember the greatest and most single common sin to all mankind is that we fail to submit to the great I am, as in God. And instead, we try and build ourselves on his throne. We think somehow that we're in charge. We think somehow that I'm like a little God. So here's my question. Are you trying to sit on God's throne? If God came to you in the cool of the evening and you knew God was coming, would you hide from his omniscience, from his all-powerful nature, would you cower because you knew that you were nothing before God and that you were actively sinful against him? Or would you be excited that he'd come to see you? So let me ask you this question. This is how I want to close today. For each of us who are here, let's ask the same question that God asked Adam. Where are you? Are you putting him in the proper place that he deserves? Or is it all about you? All about yourself? God as well. God's God. He's good. I like him. He's important. But really, it's about me. And before you say to yourself, well, I don't think that. Ask yourself if you behave that way. Because if you really stop to think about it and if God really asked... I think some of your responses might surprise you. 
So as we have a hymn and have a time, I want us to consider that. Really think about it. If God was here trying to find you, and I say try not because he didn't know, but because you're trying to hide, and he confronted you and said, where are you? What would your answer be? The best thing you could ever do is to, with a full heart and conscience, say, God, (laughs) I'm sitting on your throne, but I'm ready to give it up because you are the great I am.